This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Global Blood Therapeutics. What's up, Warriors? It's Dr. Z. And Dr. C. Welcome to another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Dr. C, um, you know, we as doctors, we, we spend a lot of time obviously taking care of sickle cell patients, but we're not the only part of the equation that matters. Often we're not even the important part. I, totally, totally, right? I feel like we rely on teammates and team members that actually amplify what we're able to do for patients. Absolutely. I mean, the patients are probably the biggest members of the team, but then, you know, we have excellent laboratory technicians who run our labs. We have medical office assistants who draw blood and take vitals and all of those things are important. Um, But I know, you know, we work in the same clinic and our clinic would not work without the advanced practice practitioners. Um, And we're going to talk about that today. Yeah. And that's probably true across the country. So, so what we did is we were able to pull in two kind of celebrity APPs in the sickle cell world um, into cheat codes. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud that we were able to get them both on, on, on the same call at the same time, which, uh, I mean, that's not easy to do with people as busy as these two. So, so today with us, we've got Mandy David. Mandy, welcome. Thank you. Mandy, give the warriors out there who don't know Mandy David a 10-second intro on who Mandy David is. Okay, I'm number one an advocate for everyone living with sickle cell disease and or you know, uh, sickle cell trait. I am by trade, a physician assistant. Um, As of yesterday, we are now called physician associates. That was brought down federally, so I'd like to just say that. So I'm a physician associate now, and I have managed a sickle cell center at Johns Hopkins uh, Sickle Cell Center for Adults for the last 15 years. I was a part of implementing our our infusion center, um, and now I do a lot of grant work, and specifically in um, increasing the work, uh, decreasing the workforce gap and increasing the workforce um, utilizing advanced practice providers, namely physician associates and nurse practitioners. So happy to be here. Love sickle cell. Going to do this till I'm no longer able to do it. And uh, thank you for having me. Awesome. I love that energy. And, and, and the second person we have on with us here is Miss Maya Bloomberg. Maya, welcome to Cheat Codes. Give the warriors out there who may not know who Maya is. Uh, a little introduction on who you are. Sure, so my name is Maya Bloomberg and I'm a hematology nurse practitioner. I've been a nurse practitioner for seven years, but prior to that I was a charge nurse on a med surge tally floor and I cared for countless sickle cell patients. And it was interesting becoming a nurse practitioner because I went from the inpatient setting where we really are just focusing on the pain and anemia, then I go on the outpatient and I really start to understand what it means to have sickle cell and how it really can encompass the entire body. So through time and just speaking with patients and learning from patients, I've realized there's such a need to bring more awareness on deck with regards to sickle cell and help bridge that gap. So I too, am a huge patient advocate with sickle cell, bleeding disorders, clotting disorders, but at least half of what I do is involved with sickle cell with research and education. So I am excited to be here. I'm really happy that you're including the two of us because as you mentioned, the nurses and PAs and APPs, we really are doing so much and have a lot of points of contact with patients and provide a lot of education. And sometimes all the doctors get the credit. So I'm glad that you're recognizing the importance of us as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so let's let's dive right into that. I mean, I, I think that you're, you're exactly right. So in our clinic, our APPs touch the patients 
at way more touch points than we do as the physicians. They sort of help us create that illusion of continuity, right? It, it, they're the ones who are keep, they're the common thread through these encounters. And you're right, the credit really lies in that. That's, that's the bleeding heart of the, that, 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 that's at the core, I should say, of the physician-patient encounter. It's really you guys, it's the APPs who are that common thread. I want to dive in a little bit into what, what, where do you think the misconception comes from? Uh, of where do you think the disrespect comes from? Let's, let's be clear about it. Why do APPs not get the credit that they deserve to have? What's driving that? Lack of education about what we do. Nobody knows what we do. Are you a nurse? Are you a tech? You're not a doctor, but you're wearing a coat like a doctor. But, you know, you got to call the doctor sometimes and there's no education. It's kind of like sickle cell. There's no education. So we continue to treat the disease like we don't know what we're doing because there's not enough education. It's the same thing with our profession generally, let alone when you narrow it down to subspecialties. I was just going to piggyback on uh, living in Miami. We care for a lot of uh, people coming from Latin America, and there's no Spanish translation for a nurse practitioner. So it, essentially, we translate it as, as an assistant to the doctor. So I think that also blurs the lines, and sometimes there is a lack of understanding. And depending who the provider you work for, sometimes they do view as an assistant. I'm fortunate to work with Dr. Harrington, and he views me as an equal and he tell, I mean, I will say I'm his left hand and three of his right fingers because he knows so much wouldn't get done without my help because we have the, I don't want to say we have endless time, but we're the ones who are dealing with the insurances, really following up on the education and making sure patients get what we need, but not all providers necessarily have that equal amount of respect. So I think the fact we don't always have that translation into Spanish makes it difficult to truly differentiate us from just an assistant. And then again, if there's no education or awareness of what the APP role truly is, they're not going to get that respect that they need. And I, I think doctors go through med school and residency and fellowship and then get out and have, you know, a, a lot of broad experience in medicine but also are doing a lot of things. So especially at academic medical centers, you know, you're doing inpatient service, you're on committees, you're doing research, you're, um, and so we're, we're spread thin, we're often not in the clinic very much. And especially something like sickle cell, you may have a hematologist who had very little experience in sickle cell, and you have an APP who's in sickle cell clinic every day doing sickle cell every day. They know the guidelines back and forth, they know what sickle cell patients need. Um, and so sometimes, you know, the patient will say, oh, I saw the nurse and I said, no, you didn't see the nurse. You saw the nurse practitioner who's been doing sickle cell for 10 years and knows more about it than most of the doctors you'd ever see. And, and so I, I think there needs to be more communication about that. And really, I, I think it's a great model because you have people who have really solid expertise in sickle cell who are there every day. They know all the patients, they know all of the protocols, they know how everything works. And, and like Dr. Z said, they're really the ones holding the clinic together and making things work, at least in Detroit, that, that's how it works. I, I would assume that's happening all across the country. You know, I, I really do think that you guys are, are, are keeping clinics running. I wanna talk a little bit, I wanna kick this one to you, Mandy. I want you to tell us a little bit about your setup at Hopkins and, and sort of how you're driving your influence in the APP world. Yeah, so um, we had a project that we started a couple years ago 
through some seed money um, that was very helpful. The idea was how do we build advanced practice providers um, under the discipline of sickle cell disease? Not how do we find, not only do how we find sickle cell experts, but how do we, how do we build a curriculum and provide a residency program so that, that we can pump out more and help with this workforce issue in sickle cell disease? And so I held focus groups and we took surveys of and, and understood all we all we could about um, people who were in sickle cell disease field because that was kind of easy to, to to find. Whether it was one year or thirty years, and we had and and we um, comprised kind of a needs assessment report of of, uh, of 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 where we are with APPs. And and what we what we what we found is that no, there's no formal education, which is not a shock. There's no formal education. Most of what we know is from our leading attending. And so we do need you all still. This is a partnership. This is not us trying to take over. We, I learned from Dr. Sophie Lanscron. The day I met her, she said, my name is Sophie. Your name is Mandy. We're partners. And 20 years later, we're still running this uh, Johns Hopkins Adult Sickle Cell Clinic. So we do need the attendings. We do need, we do need that. But, we all, but, but the attendings, you're right, could be hematologists that have only had a little bit of training in sickle cell. So are we all just going to kind of operate at this level or are we going to, you know, find a way to spread what we know as APPs after 10, 20 years of experience? And so we have um, built a curriculum uh, that's based on the feedback from the focus groups, all the qualitative surveys that we were that were given. And we are ready to launch. We've kind of softly launched, quiet, quietly launched our, 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 our pilot program of it. But the idea is to have a full year residency program. The pandemic has allowed us to kind of understand that online education is fine and that we could actually connect attendings with APPs at certain sites that can then, instead of everyone coming to Hopkins for a residency program, we can now build the curriculum and it can be replicated in each city that needs an APP in sickle cell disease. That's where we are. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just, that's so, um, it's so forward thinking and so innovative um, and so necessary uh, because we, we really do struggle with training people who are comfortable with, with sickle cell disease um, and, and understand how to take care of sickle cell patients. You know, I always tell patients that going to medical school or, or, or nursing school or, or wherever you go, PA school, that doesn't make you a sickle cell expert, right? It's that, that's not what, that's not, being a sickle cell expert comes from seeing patients with sickle cell disease. Exactly. Right? The patients are your teachers. That's, that's, yes. where, that's where you learn. Exactly. How to, that's where, yes. Um, so, so that's where you're really your expertise comes from. So you guys obviously get that expertise day in and day out, and, and, and it shows. You know, Maya, I'd love to bring you in on the conversation of how you have been leveraging social media as a tool to educate patients and create awareness. Tell me a little bit about that journey. Sure. So it actually started after you and I got to meet off of social media and a training that we did, and it gave me the idea uh, because it did come shortly after I read the article with the startling statistic that life expectancy across the board has decreased, but it's disproportionately affecting people of color. And I was trying to think, well, how can I bridge this gap? And I decided to make a social media account that really was just devoted to provide education on all things hematology. At first, I was going to just do sickle cell, but I am an expert in hemophilia, von Willebrand, and other bleeding disorders, so I didn't want to limit myself. But my goal of it was to use my platform to have reliable information that patients can understand and use it to advocate for themselves. Because depending on a sickle cell patient and the hematologist they get connected with, we all know a lot of 
people will just see a hemonc doctor. They do probably 95% oncology because that's where the majority of the money comes from. And if you get stuck with a provider like that to manage your sickle cell, you're more than likely just going to have your pain addressed and not have somebody who truly understands the pathophysiology of sickle cell and what type of screening tests to use. So my posts go over different complications. And even if you're not necessarily connected with the best hematology, the more knowledge you have, the more power you have in controlling your health. So you could bring it to the doctor and be like, hey, I heard that there's kidney issues in sickle cell. Like, do you think we should screen with a urine test if the provider might not have thought of it that way? So it started because of the pandemic. And I don't know how it works with you guys, but sometimes we have patients come and they'll trust what they read from a Facebook group over what we're speaking to as providers. And I kind of just wanted to be on social media and kind of, I don't want to say disprove anything, but I just wanted to clarify some information because misinformation spreads so much faster than the truth. And when it comes to sickle cell, you could potentially be withholding a treatment that really could help you, but you're allowing this misinformation to supersede what is the truth. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, uh, I've been, uh, I, I think that that is, you know, you guys know, all of you know that I, I'm a big believer in the power of social media. And in fact, at some point in this episode, we, we, we're going to talk about how me, Mandy, and Maya inter... I should... That's so grammatically incorrect. Mandy, <laughs> Maya, and myself, how we interfaced on um, Clubhouse, right? We were in a room on uh, natural remedies for sickle cell disease or something like that. Yeah, yeah that was the first and, time right. I got to meet Mandy. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then we started just texting, like we started a text chain on like, we should probably document some of this, right? Like, there's a lot of stuff being said here that most sickle cell providers probably don't even know about that the patients think works for them because they won't take the chance to listen, right? Or like the patients are afraid of being judged if they share what they actually think about something you know, that, that may not be medically mainstream. But the truth of the matter is, it seemed like almost every patient in that room was trying something that's not uh, kosher by, by Western medicine standards. Do you guys have similar conversations in, in, uh, in your clinical practice with patients? Does it seem like that, ha that seems to be the case sort of around your clinical practice? What do you think? Well, I have some patients who definitely like to assume more of a natural approach. And I don't think a natural approach replaces sickle cell therapies and different management, but I think incorporating it into the management is only going to help you because when you talk about different types of diets and anti-inflammatory diets, it essentially is assuming a healthy diet rich in vegetables and fruits. So anybody who assumes that anti-inflammatory diet is going to have some benefits. Where I get upset is when I have patients bringing to my attention oh, I read about this guy who said he can cure my sickle cell and now I'm spending hundreds of dollars every month to get these supplements and da-da-da-da-da. So in instances where my patients are having to spend a significant out-of-pocket expense for something that is not medically proven, I get somewhat upset from that because there's no science. It's not regulated by the FDA. We don't know what is actually going into this. And I feel like it's an opportunity for somebody to take advantage of a population who really is just looking for something that's going to help treat them. And it's not a provider like ourselves who truly care about our patients. So it gets a, somewhat frustrating when you have patients who really want to believe what they're reading and that they can get cured and really manage all their symptoms from this person who's charging a ludicrous amount of money instead of trying a therapy of like hydroxyurea, which we've studied for decades and is the only thing we can 
tell our patients is going to make you live longer with sickle cell. Um, so in those instances, it's a little frustrating. But I was so happy when you introduced me to Clubhouse because, like you said, we go to school, we only learn such a small piece of information with regards to sickle cell, and you really learn everything else from experience. So I had an amazing mentor who provided me a wealth of knowledge. Luckily, there's there are good guidelines on sickle cell management, so I was able to brush up on that. But ultimately, listening to patients, you gain so much insight from them. And there's certain things that you don't even consider and then you have a patient say it and you kind of have that aha moment that you might have never put two and two together because you're not the one who really is living with it from a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I love Clubhouse because I think it's a really great place to gain really interesting insights that we really wouldn't have gained otherwise without that yeah, interaction. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. M M Mandy, t tell me a little bit about your approach with, with that uh, as far as... How do you how do you sort of navigate that patient encounter, where where they're talking to you about that natural approach versus a, a medical approach? What 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 sort of points do you like to hit with those patients? What's important to you in that encounter? Yeah, you know, I really need to understand, you know, kind of the the, the why. I mean, I've heard several different things. You know, why 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 are you looking in in, in that direction? I've had patients take supplements because they went to Amazon and got a kit so the sperm count was low and they needed to get up and you know and their sickle cells affecting their sperm count and they gotta take these medications from Amazon. It's not FDA approved. So we talk about the dangers or not I don't want to say dangers, but I we talk about the risk. <laughs> we talk about how high the risks are when you're taking things that have not been approved. We also talk about the risks of things that are have been approved. Um, but we put it in the context of there are things with higher risk because we know less about them and less medic you know medications that we know less about. And I, if I have data, I, I we we talk about it. And if we don't, we let them know that there is no data. And what we do have data about is are these disease modifying therapies, and that we can need to focus on that. I will like to say that, um, you know, there's misinformation on the, the provider side as well as the patient side. And so when you have a conundrum of misinformation from both sides of the medical fence, uh, that leads to patients filling in their own stories, right? And so I don't know what to eat. I'm going to eat this supplement or this CMOS or this or that or that or that. And, you know, but, you know, what about us talking to patients about eating fruits and vegetables? Not opioids all the time, right? And so, you know, I, I think there needs to be a shift and I'm bringing that back to the APP. I give monthly echoes um, that are federally funded under, uh, uh, through echo, uh, telementoring sessions on sickle cell for APPs all around the country. And you'd be surprised how many cases we get where it's completely mis mishandled. Not, 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 you know, as a matter of fact, but factually, that's not what we do in this field. And so, there, the, you know, we, we have to approach this not just from the patient side, but from the provider side, especially if we're building a new workforce. We have to think about that as well. A hundred percent. I think we really, it's proven that we're lacking the number of qualified specialists to really manage and understand sickle cell. So we can do so much to bring sickle cell awareness to the community and to the world. But if we're not really addressing it internally and within the providers, both MDs and all of the APPs and just bedside nursing, RNs, LPNs, et cetera, we're not going to bring the change that we really need to see within that community of patients. At your centers, are you guys the sickle cell APPs or do you have a team? I wish I had a team. I have, it's really, it's a two-man show. It's Dr. Harrington and myself. I have uh, a clinic within a public hospital and within there, we don't necessarily have the most support. So I wear a ton of hats there. We're at UM, I have a little bit more. I have uh, triage nurses and I do have a research coordinator and a 
an on-call social worker, which doesn't always give the accountability that we need. So I think for the two-man show of Dr. Harrington and myself, the amount that we can do to really make sure our patients are getting what we they need and getting as good care as we really can and staying following all of the guidelines and staying on top of screening tests and doing our best to prevent complications, I think we're doing wonderfully. However, I think we could be doing better, but it's a matter of not necessarily having the support or the funding. And I mean, Dr. Callahan, we both work at HTCs and it's just so startling, right? I've been a nurse practitioner at my HTC for seven years now, and I have half of what I do is with bleeding disorder patients where the funding is so robust. And then the other half of what I do is involved with sickle cell where the funding is minimal, yet the amount of people affected are so much more. And it's it's just very disheartening, no, but I'm yeah, hopeful at the yeah, same it's time. It's ridiculous. I walk across the hall and the resources go down dramatically. Yeah, we um we actually, so when I started Hopkins, it was myself and, and uh, Dr. Sophie Lanscron, and we literally just, we had about 100 patients. And uh, that was a lot of patients for two, the only two people at the institution who could really help these patients. And after that, <laughs> we were able, a lot of, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, seeing patients, building up RVUs, you know, getting financially stable enough to say we can hire another APP now, and we can hire another APP, and we can hire another APP. So I would like to give a shout out to EGO Manake, Ashley Loriello, and Shannon Carroll. Um, the four of us, and meet with me now after this time being the least clinical, they hold down the fort seven days a week. And then we also recruit hematology fellows who come in. Not only is it a training avenue that now APPs are training hematology fellows, but also they're picking up moonlighting shifts. They're already in-house and they're rotating through. So I will have to say that outpatient seven days a week, inpatient seven days a week, we have a full advanced practice provider team that is amazing that not only do we cover Hopkins, but we get calls from institutions all over the world and we can help that way as well. That's we fantastic. So how many patients now? Now it's about uh, 600. Wow. So if you build it, they'll come. If you build it, they'll come. That's my saying every talk. If they, <laughs> you build it, they will come. Be, be ready when you build it. <laughs> so, so you guys now have infusion seven days a week. Patients have seven pain. They come, they come to you guys. They get in a chair. They get IV fluids. They get NSAIDs. Everything. They get pain yep, meds. We they do follow-ups. You need EPO. Those are nurse visits, EPO injections, hydroxyurea lab checks. We also take patients every day from the emergency room. Sometimes we send them back to the emergency room instead of, you know, if they don't need to be admitted. Um, we also admit directly start PCAs in the infusion center. We don't, there's nothing that we don't do. Whew, man, I, I don't know about the we rest to, like, of you on this call. This. <laughs> <laughs> I'm it's happy for, years. I'm, I'm happy for people in Baltimore, but I'm, I'm jealous. I got FOMO, yeah. <laughs> that is well, something. <laughs> Well, historically, our adult patients don't get anything near this. So, yeah. you know, our, our, we, our, our, our babies do get a little bit more support. And so we're trying to figure out how to do that for our adult patients. I think that's uh, wonderful. That's just... And it, it really is such a need. You, you guys put together sort of pathways for all of these things and coordinate it all. And Dr. Lanscron kind of supervises, chips in when there's crazy problems. But day to day, you guys are managing most of it. Yeah, I'm the program promoted to the program manager. So a few things I have to escalate to her. But for the most part, I uh, manage all the operations under the clinic um, and put out our little fires that need to be dealt with. And over how, what year time span did you achieve going from 100 patients to 600? I'm curious about that. It's been about 15 years. Yeah, I mean, we probably hit 600, 550 a few years ago. We've been lingering around this area now. Um, but it, uh, it, 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 it built, obviously... 
it started to grow much faster once we had a seven-day-a-week infusion center. I imagine when you do that and patients have access to good care 24-7, you start having fewer hospital admissions. You have patients who oh, yeah. are having fewer complications. They're getting the, the disease-modifying therapies they need. They're yeah. getting, uh, you know, pain management and psychosocial support yeah. and, and it's and, true comprehensive care yeah it's true concept comprehensive care um and we are able we have a research team as well that i manage or over over that's with under the clinic we have clinical staff and a research staff and so now the cl the research staff can uh do site visits and carry out a lot of the research needs signing consent forms everything can happen in this one space and so that's been uh that's been kind of amazing to, to to, 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 well, to see too. That's, that's fantastic. I yeah, I want to come visit. That is the blueprint. That's the blueprint. You guys should, f you guys should start franchising that out. Like, you know, <laughs> I know so it's like property. Yeah. So we actually <laughs> utilize our skills to uh, obtain these grants. So now we can. We're building an online toolkit of how to manage uh, an infusion center um, and how to and and for different audiences, including the patient and community business organizations. So these are coming down the pike because you're right. We, you know, myself and a nurse 15 years ago cut the ribbon, opened the door, and had no idea what we're doing, writing policies as we go. But now we have a blueprint that we know is effective, um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it, we're ready to share it. And Dr. Sherney, Dr. Alavi, and I, I love Dr. Uh, Sherney. <laughs> uh, joined your ASH adult workshop, and, and you guys were one of the examples of how to do it. And uh, so we're trying to learn from that and make things better here in Detroit. So. Thank and you. I like to tell people, we didn't, people always look at, oh, Hopkins, and we did not start here. <laughs> we started with nothing. We started with finding institutional buy-in. We started, our, you talk about our readmission rate, it was 40-something percent when we started. It went down to 24, which is very impressive as well. Keep the patients out of an emergency room. How do you do it? Build something else other than an emergency room. And I'm glad that you're collecting data on all of this because I think, yes, you have the blueprints on how to create that comprehensive care for sickle cell, but finding the grant money, having the data for, that you've collected is just reemphasizing the importance of why this is needed. I mean, in the hemophilia world, we have so much data on the importance of comprehensive care and using that multidisciplinary yeah. approach. And what you're doing is essentially that within the sickle cell community. And we need more of that. And I think you guys doing the hard work and publicly uh, making that available to people is just going to benefit more and more people in the community. So kudos to you guys. Yeah. I know it was probably a ton of work 15 years ago and just leading up to where you are now. But I think looking back, it's absolutely amazing uh, what you guys yeah. have accomplished. Congrats. It, thank you. Thank you. And the goal is to recruit more folks to come into this field. People want to do health disparities. People want to go, I'm writing recommendations for med school and physician associates and nurse practitioners. And I think this is an opportunity. You want to do health disparities? This is health disparity. This is it. Come on in. This is Come it. on in. <laughs> this is it. And, and it is, I mean, it's a great rewarding field, right? Like every yes. day you're spending time with, um, you know, a lot of great families. There's some, you know, jerks too. But most of the people we work with are really <laughs> nice. And uh, you can make a difference. I mean, you know, you know exactly. families over years and years, and you can really feel like you have an impact. And um, so if you're thinking about being uh an APP, do it in sickle cell. Call me. I have. If you are an APP in sickle cell, call me. We have echoes, and we can talk you through cases and help you. Amazing. So, you know, as we're coming to the end of this segment, I want to ask you guys a couple questions. 
in both of your respective roles at your institutions, if you're looking from now, if you have um, the ability to predict the future, five years from now, where do you think in an ideal world, where's, what, is, what are you doing five years from now? What does your center look like five years from now? What do you wish for sickle cell patients where you are currently? Um, and what your, what your ability to impact the sickle cell world looks like? Well, personally speaking, I would love to have our own dedicated sickle cell unit. I, we have CTUs and infusion centers to do outpatient blood transfusions and hydration. However, it's predominantly for our oncology patients. So luckily I have a good relationship and the managers will try to squeeze patients in for me to do hydration, but it's really on their terms. We don't have a dedicated infusion unit. So I would love to be able to have that for our patients. And I would love to be able to bring in a social worker on board because I think there's, I mean, a social worker is a huge umbrella term. I think somebody to address a lot of the mental health needs is so important. I mean, it's Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, or it's coming to the end of it, I should say. And we know that sickle cell and mental health really do go hand in hand because those living with depression and anxiety, we know are going to have more hospitalizations, more pain. And if we had a dedicated social worker who can really spend the time to do the analysis for depression, evaluate the people who are high risk, give them some coping strategies and management strategies, it's ultimately going to benefit the patient. But then also a social worker can help outside of the therapy aspect of things and just help with different resources in the community. Maybe they don't have transportation to an appointment and that's why they're missing so many of their follow-ups. Maybe they can help uh, just facilitate a better life for them and connect them with different resources with housing and within the community that I just, I'm not aware of or I don't have access to. Uh, so my goal would be to just expand our program, have that dedicated infusion center. So if I have a patient who calls me today and they're having crisis pain, I can get them in today for some fluids and some pain medication to try to prevent that ER hospital and have a dedicated social worker, not just somebody who's on call to help me here and there sporadically, but somebody who can really get to know my patients and understand like the beautiful and wonderful warriors that they are and really be able to help them. I love it. I love it. Now, Mandy, your answer is going to look a little different, I think, because your starting point is a little different from today. So five years from now, where are we going? The social as the, the the mental health aspect needs to uh, be beefed up, and historically that is what we kind of deal with last. And I understand that, right? You got to get the clinical medicine operations down, right? We do. We also do um, transfusions in our center, uh, and so there's a lot of you know. You're, whenever time someone comes in for transfusion, you do an iron overload. You're doing you know. You're just a lot to think about. So the but we but we have that down. We have we do have a social worker. We do have a psychiatrist. We have two now. Um, excuse me, psych, uh, yeah, psychiatrists, we, we don't have psychologists, and we do have a community health worker. We do have a social worker. So while people say that sounds like enough mental health, we do need uh, psychotherapists and psychologists, licensed clinical social workers as well. Um, that's, as we get people healthy, we need the, 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 the psychosocial tools to kind of keep them healthy, or the, the, the model we have is not sustainable. I think that, I have here beef up psychosocial, psychosocial. That's really where I think we take this. Also, a major, I'm, I'm into, I'm gonna put a plug for my own Sickle Smart Consulting business, which is a training and educational um, pr uh, organization. But we need to make this a training hub. You know, where now we have students, sometimes I take high school students, you know, there, there's some high level high school students hmm. that are going into health academics at, and they have uh, leadership academies. So we'll take some of them. We're taking pharmacists now. We're taking hematology fellows. Um, we need to continue to build that. We need more APPs, obviously, to be able to do that. But I think, why not make this a training hub? 
Why do we still have residents that, you know, that have to come and still have to learn how to t take care of sickle cell? But now they're a resident on the floor taking care of a sickle cell patient. <laughs> so if we can get before the curve a bit because we have the infrastructure set up, you know, fourth year medical students come through. I think that's where we start to expand what we're doing out into the universe because we can't do it all. So I think um, expanding what we're, our, our model and um, for our patients specifically, I heard last week you have a you had someone had a job, a job counselor. Like, I was just like, oh, my gosh, if I could have that. Wasn't that fantastic? No, that was just amazing. I'm like, what? So, um, yeah, those those are, I, I guess people consider those luxuries, but I consider those uh, sustainab sustainability pieces for the model. I love it. Now, if there's people out there who are like, how do I get in touch with these wonderful, wonderful individuals, how do they find you? Well, I'm on Instagram, so you can look up at the Heme NP, Hematology NP. Um, also, you can just Google Maya Bloomberg, and you'll probably find me on the CDC directory for HTC. Um, but Instagram, if anybody ever wants to spam me with topics they're interested in learning on, I'm always open ears and happy to share my expertise. Awesome. How about you, Mandy? Yes, um, I'm on LinkedIn. That's my uh, uh, social media of choice. <laughs> okay. um, mostly, yeah. I do have Instagram, but usually Sickle Smart Consulting. I'm under that. Um, also, feel free, mdavid7 at jhmi.edu and mdavid at sicklesmartconsulting.org. Feel free to reach out to me through any of those avenues. I'll be happy to talk at any time. Beautiful. Listen, I am proud to be able to say that I uh, care for sickle cell patients with individuals on my team who look like you guys, who, who, who care for patients the way you guys do from your heart and soul. Um, it brings me so much joy to know that I have colleagues uh, in this country that, that are doing this. So thank you for everything you guys do. Thank you. And thank you. Yes, you, Dr. Z and Dr. C, let me tell you, I, as soon as I mentioned to a couple people that I was going to be on the show, I, I, was, I was on a celebrity show. This is amazing what you're doing. You're trailblazing. <laughs> like, people are just like calling me now. Are you done the recording? I mean, so thank you for what you're doing. This is really a trailblazing, change-making movement. And I think that's where we have the people who are, who are leading in sickle cells where we need to go. So thank you both for your efforts on that. Thank you. I have to say this doing this is so much fun because we get to talk to people like you and share ideas about how we can help the warriors. So yeah. thank you. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. All right, Warriors, let's get on to a segment of this show that I have really come to start enjoying more and more. I feel like the more of these we do, the better I like them. Dr. Mike, I've got a word for you today. All right, let's hear it. Do I get a do I get a riddle? Of course you get a riddle. You know, you already know. So when I when I started my hematology training, <laughs> this riddle's going to start way back. When I started my hematology training, there was um you know, I really liked blood. And of course I love the red blood cell, but there was this other cell that always intrigued me. And initially, I mean as a young fellow, I thought 
this is a cool cell because it looks so different in different people. No matter how how many times you look at it, it looks a little different. And it gives you clues into, you know, potentially why patients may be looking the way they're looking. It's an important cell because its function re- really is to keep us safe. Its function is really to keep us safe, but, but it's got a little bit of a part to play in sickle cell disease. You know, we've thought for a long time that sickle cell disease is just a red blood cell disorder, which of course it is. And we talk about sickle cells getting stuck, but this other cell actually is part of that that traffic jam. You know where I'm going with this? I got two things on my on my differential diagnosis here, Dr. Z. Yeah, that's that that's fair enough. Um neutrophils and platelets. And I prefer platelets, but I could see Dr. Z being a neutrophil guy. Platelets are gorgeous. They're beautiful. They're beautiful to look at. That being said, you don't make it very far in life without neutrophils either. That is true. You need your neutrophils. But they do cause us a lot of problems in sickle cell. They do. Tell us a little bit about neutrophils. Sure. So, um, you know, when we get our blood counts, we always tell you the hemoglobin. Your hemoglobin seven. Um, sometimes we might tell you the reticulocytes, the baby red blood cells are 13%. So the reticulocytes are baby red blood cells, yeah? Yep. And then we may say uh, your your platelets are 410 and your white blood cell count is 6,300. But then that white blood cells, there's different kinds of them. So it's broken down into the different kinds of white blood cells. And there's lymphocytes that... Uh, fight viruses and make antibodies and do surveillance on your cells to make sure they're healthy and kill the bad ones. There's eosinophils that fight off parasites and cause us lots of problems with allergies and stuff. But the the neutrophils are part of that and probably, you know, a really, really important part of that white blood cell count. And uh, they they go by different names. So they are sometimes called PMNs or polymorphonuclear um, white blood cells, and they're they're pretty cells. You're right, doctors. They they uh, they have a nucleus like uh, most cells do, but their nucleus is polymorphonuclear. It's got multiple little lobes to it that are sort of tied together by strings. So um, yeah, sometimes they make happy faces, or sometimes they make S's and look like Superman. Um, I had one tell me F you one time. <laughs> sure that's not the first time <laughs> it won't be the last time. <laughs> and uh they also have all of these little granules in them so when we when we stain them and look at them under the microscope they're pretty they have these dark purple kind of unusual shaped nuclei and then they have all these little uh purplish pinkish uh dots of granules inside them and their job is really really important um so they're, they're part of what we call the innate immune system. So um, our immune system has a lot, of, a lot of different parts to fight off all of the different kinds of infections you might encounter. Some of them are really um, sort of specific and remember infections and target them. So those would be things like our T cells or our antibodies. But some of them just go around looking for bad guys to eat, and that's what neutrophils do. So they just live a couple days, and they float around in your blood and look for for bad things to to eat up and destroy. And those pretty little granules inside them are full of enzymes that break down 
bacteria and, and fungus and digest them and eat them up so that they die and can't can't make you sick and so th these cells are floating around your body all over the place all of the time and they they clean up the lining of your mouth they keep the inside of your lungs clean um, they float around in your blood and eat up bacteria and you realize how important they are when you don't have them so sometimes uh, we give people chemotherapy and they don't have neutrophils and they get at a really high risk of bacteria infections and fungal infections and um, they get fevers and need to be hospitalized they get mouth sores that don't heal very well um, so you see how important they are in, in your immune system but in sickle cell they're still important you need them to fight off those infections but because of the level of inflammation they're often stimulated you have a lot of them and they're sticky little things and they stick to red blood cells they stick to platelets they stick to sickle cells they stick to the blood vessel lining and that can lead to vasoocclusion, especially if you have a lot of them. So there are situations, there's a drug we give called GCSF that increases your neutrophils if you have cancer to help you fight off infections. If you give that to a patient with sickle cell, they get into terrible problems. They can have uh, you know, huge problems with their spleen. They can get acute chest syndromes and even die from it because um, those neutrophils can cause problems. One of the ways that hydroxyurea works is actually it keeps that neutrophil number down. It suppresses you making some neutrophils, and that helps with sickle cell. Um, so that's actually how we dose hydroxyurea often. Is We look for what we call the maximum tolerated dose. Yep. And, and by that, we mean the dose that gets your neutrophils into the sweet spot where you can fight off infections, but inflammation is low. So... We want to keep it in that like 2,000 neutrophils to 4,000 neutrophils and a tiny drop of blood. So that we call the absolute neutrophil count. And we'll say your absolute neutrophil count is 3,000, so we're going to keep your hydroxyurea dose the same, or your absolute neutrophil count is 6,000, so we're going up on your hydroxyurea dose, or your absolute neutrophil count is 400, and we're going to hold your hydroxyurea until it starts to come back up because you might be at a little bit risk of infection. And uh, what's that? What's that sweet spot for us? So two thousand to four thousand usually. And uh, neutrophils have a whole lot of interesting things they can do. There's this new field really um, called neutrophil extracellular traps, where the neutrophils just sort of bust open and shoot out their DNA, and that becomes uh, sort of a platform for blood to clot on. And probably this is a way, like if you were like a like a limulus crab, like a horseshoe crab, you don't have a blood clotting system. It is your immune system. So if you got like infected by a bacteria or, or something, the way you would respond is by having your neutrophils shoot out their DNA, cause a big blood clot, just clot the whole section of that part of your body off. It dies and falls off, but the infection can't get into the rest of your body. So in that way, the, the neutrophils and the blood clotting talk to each other. And that may have some role in sickle cell crisis, too, that these neutrophils stick to things, they get activated, um, and you have these neutrophil extracellular traps. And so there, there are now even some, um, some people looking at, you know, can we target neutrophils, not just by lowering the counts with hydroxyurea, but could we um, target them in maybe more clever ways to, to try to improve sickle cell. So, so neutrophils or PMNs, um, that's the word of the day.
Now on to my favorite part of cheat codes. I, you know, I don't follow the the social medias as closely as Dr. Z, so I always like to hear what's going on, get an update. So what's been happening in your Snapchats, Dr. Z? Oh, not much in my Snapchats, but uh, let me tell you a little bit about, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the two guests who, who, who we have on this episode and um, my last interaction with them. It was actually kind of fantastic. You know, one of the things I love about the sickle cell community is how connected it is, how they've leveraged uh, social media platforms to make sure that they're advocating for each other, pushing each other, promoting each other. I was in a clubhouse room and happened to come across Maya and Mandy in the same room. And that room was really touching on some sensitive topics for uh, us sort of Western medicine allopathic doctors uh, and, and providers. It was talking a little bit about holistic care, you know, natural supplements, things like this. And, and what we were talking about is, well, this is awesome that, that me, Maya and Mandy are in this room, not, not to sort of argue or not to debate but really just to get a sense of the real sickle cell population, right? The real unfiltered sickle cell population, the population that's telling you everything about themselves and what they think about their care in an unfiltered way, not worried about being judged for what they think. And there's some real value in that, right? There's some real value in getting that accurate information from sickle cell warriors. And I think that we falter there. See, in the clinic room, in those four walls, having honest, open communication, it does happen, right, Dr. Mike? But it happens infrequently, right? There are families that we certainly feel so comfortable with. We've built a relationship of trust over time. They tell us everything, right? But a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with a population that's so stereotyped and so used to discrimination in the medical system, see what happens is that those patients, they come into the healthcare system and they're already so worried about how they're stereotyped that they just shut down, right? They don't wanna share anything else that'll push that stereotype further, right? And that inhibits our ability to care for them appropriately. And see, a lot of physicians sometimes, and I've been guilty of this too, I've been guilty of being very judgmental in, in, in my interactions with sickle cell patients in the form of like being very harsh about medication, medication adherence, immunizations. You know, and over time I've come to learn that our job really is to present information. That's our, that's our job, right? And, and we try to do the best we can. And our job is to save lives, right? And try to prevent injury. But at the same time, everybody's got their right to self-determination, right? And they've got their own free will. And parents should have the right to um, make decisions that are well-informed. And um, we should respect some of those decisions. If we, if we know for a fact that that, that that parent is truly as well-informed as we possibly could have made them. Anyways, I digress from my original original point, which is, you know, that that being in that clubhouse room at that moment with Maya and Mandy really opened my eyes to this. And, and we started having a side conversation about how interesting would it be to like at least keep um keep a ledger of like sickle cell myths that are commonly being spouted about 
and um, create a safe place for patients to go and check if something they've heard or seen is true or not, right? Based on what we know from citable scientific literature, right? And, um, you know, that's something that I think is really missing in the, in the sickle cell world. I think that that's something that we, we really need to think about is, is some type of truth meter in the context of how Western medicine looks. Thoughts about that, Dr. Callahan? I love that. And I, I think, like, we try to do some of that here, but it'd be nice to have, like, a Snopes-like clearinghouse or, uh, you know, an Ask Jeeves where you say, you know, uh, is this true? And then you get, like, uh, an un unbiased, kind of evidence-based, fair assessment of it, which might be, we don't know. We don't know if that's true or not, or there's no evidence for it, but it could be true, or or this is just nonsense. This, this is going to turn you smurf blue if you keep taking your silver. And, and the truth of the matter is, for most of the things that are there, it actually would say we just don't know, right? Yeah, if we're being fair. It hasn't been studied. It hasn't been tested. I might use logic to say I don't think this would work, or it could work, but it, it hasn't been studied. We don't know. That exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. But I, but I think that that's something that we as a community should really, um, really think about doing, uh, really think about pushing forward. Um, but, but this just goes to show you that, you know, platforms like that, that allow for people to be themselves when they interact and, and, and speak their truth, allows you to learn the true natural history, the true sort of state of affairs in sickle cell disease, right? If all of our patients are drinking alkaline water, we should know that. If all of our patients are using liquid silver, we should know that, right? And the reason we don't know that is because our patients aren't comfortable sharing it with us. And they're not comfortable sharing it with us because we haven't cultivated those relationships that allow us to have that channel of communication at this point in time, right? And, you know, certainly it's something we can work on, something we can work towards. Um, I think I think that that's going to be key as we move forward. Yeah, I, I, I think even if you try to create an environment and clinic of not judging people and um, letting them say their piece and um, ask any questions, I, I think still a lot of times patients feel hesitant, like, oh, I don't want to have this conversation or I think my doctor is going to think this way. So I, I think... Uh, it would be nice to have a place where you could sort of anonymously go ask questions you might not want to ask somebody. All right, Warriors, that concludes another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. We really hope that you enjoyed that episode. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the underrated and underappreciated players in the sickle cell healthcare team are the nurse practitioners. I mean, For these sure. guys are sure. the engine, the beating heart of our sickle cell clinics. And um, I'm glad we were able to spend some time with um, Mandy and Maya today. Yeah, that was great. So, Warriors, keep living well with sickle cell. For more information about sickle cell disease, follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and me at Imagineer. You can follow Cheat Codes Sickle Cell Podcast at Cheat Codes Pod on Instagram. Until then, keep doing your thing, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time. Peace.